Well, hey, our guest today in the FYA interview series is uh, Emily Frazier. Most of y'all know Emily because she handles our social media. She's a photographer, um, a photojournalist, works um, in a lot of different contexts, and has a super interesting story of growing up in Turkey. So uh, please don't miss this. There's some hilarious stories, some really interesting stuff that she's done. Um, and uh, more than anything, man, really helpful perspective on um photography and our responsibility with our phones and um, being to give dignity to people so uh please don't miss this episode i hope you enjoy it i'm happy i'm smiling <laughs> Okay, please welcome Emily Frazier. Uh, Emily is a photographer and is uh, a lot of different things, part of our community here with young adults. She manages social media for our, um, our different accounts that we've got. Um, and so she's super interesting and I'm excited to talk to, uh, talk to you today just about um, your childhood and, and life, which has been super atypical, I think, for most people who are in their 20s in America now. Um, and so why don't you tell us kind of where you're from, how you grew up, um, and, and, and we'll start there and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so I grew up in Turkey. Um, both my parents are from Memphis, like grew up in Midtown um, and I think Cordova. So uh, they met in college um, and then they decided to move to Turkey and they were living there from 1991. Uh, so they came back in 97 to have me and then took me back after six weeks. Um, had my little passport <laughs> and I grew up there up until 2011. So you probably were, because that was your norm was being here once a year or so for a few months, like you were pretty acclimated to American culture, I guess. Right. Yeah. For the most, my parents were big movie people. Like uh, as far as the missionary okay. community goes, like my parents let us read Harry Potter. So we were more on the like, <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So there was Eddie. like the underground <laughs> Harry Potter PDFs that were going around. <laughs> but, of um, course. So I grew up with like, Shrek which was a no-no with a lot of families and like I watched Disney Channel so as far as that goes I was definitely more acclimated um okay so you had cool parents in a missionary yeah. context which not to offend the missionary world that is not normal no <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like I tell people it's like being homeschooled versus being a homeschooler okay like, that, no that makes total that sense realm, which is totally, totally different. <laughs> right. Um, so, okay. Do you have a, do you have a distinct earliest memory of life in Turkey? Like when you start to think about like your childhood there, are there like staple memories that pop up that like, or smells or sights or um, sounds that you think of when you think of your early life in Turkey? Yeah. Um, so I just went back this last October for the first time in nine years which solidified wow. all of those like smells and little sides where I was like, yes, this is definitely going to be forever in my brain. Um, so I grew up in an apartment and my parents also very uniquely lived in the same apartment for 20 years and rented. Wow. Um, and they weren't even supposed to live there. They were house sitting when they first moved to Turkey. Um, and then that family came back and had already had like a couple kids because they've been in America for a few years and so they're like just keep it we'll change the lease over and oh, so awesome. we had the same landlord and everything and so I think that apartment um is like my earliest memories of like the windows all open we lived about a 14 minute walk to the bay um in the middle of the city and so like wow. seagulls breeze sometimes bad if like the bay smells really bad it smells <laughs> like fish and oysters but those are probably my earliest memories of like playing downstairs with neighborhood kids and not being allowed to come inside that was like most people my age has that same where it's like your parent locks you outside and it's like play outside you don't get to come in yeah. um and we had like a balcony and my mom would lower a basket down with snacks no <laughs> and like she was like you're not coming out <laughs> for like two hours like, you can do it. she yeah. was dedicated to y'all having outside playtime <laughs> yes 
streets, but we weren't allowed in the street. There was like the little gate, and then it was like if you leave okay. the gate, we were in so much trouble. Yeah. So for those who don't know, not necessarily me because I I know, but for other people who <laughs> might not know, um, where Turkey is in the world and what the climate's like and all of that. T- tell us about what what Turkey is like. So Turkey is. Um, I mean, it's in the Middle East. It's right on the edge of the Middle East in Europe. So Istanbul, which used to be Constantinople, um, yeah. is not the capital. It's actually Ankara. Um, oh, but most people think Istanbul is. Um, and that city, I think, is one of the only cities that is separated by Europe and Asia. So there's an Asian side and a Europe side. Um, so oh, I had no friends way. who grew up in Europe but went to school in Asia, which is super cool. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I grew up in Izmir, which is further down the coast. Um, so okay. west, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Turkey is a 99.9% Muslim country. Um, there's under, at least documented Christians, under 2,000. But it's so, a huge, I mean, I would say it's like the size of Texas plus another state. So it's yeah, a so lots country. of people, yeah. So the fact yeah. that there's only 2,000 out of... Texas and a half is a lot. Yes. Um, And so it's hard. It's one of my favorite things about Turkey is that it isn't just a Middle Eastern. It doesn't replicate like um, countries that you would think of when you think of the Middle East, like Jordan or Saudi Arabia or Iran, because it has this huge European and Greek influence. And so there's this modern twist that is like the most fun part because you hear the mosque going off for the like prayer during the day, but also Britney Spears is playing at Starbucks and like <laughs> someone has a head covering, but then also there's like a model being photographed over there. And it's like the two worlds collide and it's what wow. makes Turkey Turkey. And like the culture is so warm and hospitable that it's not this like aggressive. I don't know. It's really funny because even Turks, like they yell at each other. And so when you originally are watching them on the street, everyone's like, oh my gosh, they're fighting. And then they all start laughing. And it's like, yeah. you get in a car wreck and you're like, let's go get chai over it, you know? And yeah. I, yeah. yeah. And it's very like warm. You're going to be invited into their home, whether you like it or not. And you must accept all the food and it's just the best. All right. So talk to us about food then, like the, it being a, a Middle Eastern Greek and Asian and all that uh, yeah. country. What, what was the food like there? Not spicy, which is like awesome for me. A <laughs> um, lot of vegetables. So like where I grew up, which I would think is majority of Turkey, meat was really expensive. Um, that was a big culture shock when I moved to America was just like meat was the focus of a meal as opposed to like a bonus. Um, and so I think I ate like accidentally vegetarian a lot of my life. Um, just because one hamburger patty was like broken into peas and then you would pour it over rice with yogurt for a family of four. Um, and so olive oil heavy, fresh bread and lots and lots of vegetables. And then if you're going to meet, eat meat, it's going to be, um, probably chicken or, lamb or beef um no boy (laughs) what was your family dynamic like i mean you and your sister were probably pretty close i'd imagine like growing up there what what was what was your childhood like there yeah so pretty early on um it started becoming clear that i had learning disabilities i was like it took me a really long time to learn to talk which at first was normal because my sister took a long time because kids who are learning bilingual usually can be a little bit further and because they're organizing. And then when they start talking, they start talking in like full phrases and sentences. Yeah. So initially that was like what my parents were thinking was happening, but was actually happening was like going in and out. (laughs) I was not taking it in. So it took me a while. My parents under advice from doctors here they were like just eliminate as much Turkish as possible from her life so she can just learn English Uh first so I was pretty saturated um with only speaking English aside from like my parents friends coming over in church and then my parents decided to put me in preschool and kindergarten which is where my sister went which was a private German-run Turkish preschool kindergarten and I have a lot of great memories there 
Um, and that was really where I learned the beef of my Turkish was during that time because it was like every day, all day, the principal's the only one who knows English. And if you don't learn Turkish, then you get sent to the principal's office because she has to explain <laughs> something to you. So like I spent okay. for the first probably like six months just being blamed for everything because they were like, she goes, <laughs> she can't defend herself. She goes to the principal's <laughs> office anyways. Um, yeah, I mean, something would happen in the sandbox across the playground and they'd be like, the foreigner did it. <laughs> and I couldn't oh say anything. God. So I was like, um, that is... so, yeah, so I went to that preschool kindergarten for, I think, two years. Um, and it was awesome, despite that. Um, and <laughs> then my parents decided to homeschool me so that we could learn in English and just make sure we had that because they knew eventually we were probably going to move back to America or at least we were going to go to school in America, like with college or anything further. And so they were like, we need to prioritize, especially with me. They were like, we need to prioritize her learning English first. Um, And so I was homeschooled um, for the rest of my high school or elementary and high school years. And with that, there was no international school in our city, which was one of the reasons why my friendships were very fluid. Like they were coming in and out. Um, (laughs) Yeah. My friends were coming in and out basically throughout my whole childhood. I never had a friend longer than two years past eight years old. And so a huge part of that was because we didn't have an international school. And so parents would move there, their kids weren't doing well, or someone who was never meant to homeschool was homeschooling. Yeah. And they were like, yeah. we're moving to Istanbul, we're moving to Ankara, where there were two major international schools. Okay. And so we started, like there was a group that started their own co-op. Um, but my mom, again, was really, she studied education in college and she never okay. taught. And so she was like, I can't use this. And then as my learning abilities developed, um, she went back to school and got a certificate as a learning disabilities therapist so that she could be my therapist in Turkey because that obviously wasn't available, barely available in America at the time. No way. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Right? Yeah. My mom basically like turned mom, teacher, therapist all in one she kind of sacrificed our relationship for a while, obviously, because it was like, I hated my therapist and my teacher. Um, Or was y'all's experience that it was um, much more like there wasn't necessarily a stereotype to missionary families. Was that your experience or did you guys, did you guys, could you tell at the time that y'all were not the same as other missionary families you were around? I think I met a lot of people that were moving around all the time. Like, I think that that's been when I enter into the third culture kid community, one of the things I don't share is they're like, you know, I don't know where home is and all of these things. And I struggle with, I don't know where home is, but it's between two places. Yeah. And like literally two houses, like one apartment, one house. And yeah, uh, I was meeting people at, I went to a summer camp while in Turkey of basically all third culture kids. And like, you're talking to okay. people that move once a year for their dad's military job. And so they've moved to 16 countries by the time yeah. they're 12. And it's like right. insane. And I definitely didn't share, like my parents were very, my childhood was very stable when it came to things my parents could control, you know, like yeah. where we lived who they were, our upbringing, our Friday night family, popcorn nights, you know, like what we ate, what we saw was like very stable, but then everybody else was moving in and out. That was like the similar cycle to, that I relate to, to other third culture kids is that I didn't have friends very long and I said goodbye a lot, but it wasn't me saying goodbye and leaving, you know, it was being left. Yeah. Yeah. Which is its own set of... (laughs) Sounds really sad. It was fine. I was just left throughout my childhood by everyone I I loved except my parents. Yeah. (laughs) I would think the predominant amount of people that are going to be listening to this spent their childhood in a predominantly Christian country um, where the the regular kind of holiday rhythms, even if you weren't a practicing um, Christian, are going to be Christmas, Easter. um, Those are sort of the religious holidays. So what were and i've got a story that i want to like 
see if you'll tell me um, <laughs> but like what what was that like growing up in a in a muslim country like the the regular religious rhythms uh when you're not a part of that specific culture and, and what were some of those for you yeah um well for one thing like christmas was not a thing um and I know there's like this great video of my parents in like 1991, their first Christmas. My mom almost crying because my dad found a, like a tree and chopped off the top of it and was like, this is our Christmas tree. And my mom was like, you know, um, by the time I was, I guess, early enough to like start knowing Christmas and like early memories of Christmas, Turks had kind of caught on to the Christmas tree, but they thought it was like a New Year's tree. So they sold fake Christmas trees, but it was like everyone's decorating for New Year's. So you would, by the time we moved, you would see sometimes a Christmas tree in someone's window, but it okay. wasn't like Christmas. Um, and that was something that was so funny is like they played all of these like Christmas songs in the malls all holiday long, just the way oh, we do. Weird. But it's like, oh, holy night. And you're like, <laughs> like it was a silent night is playing in the middle of a mall like in the middle of December in a 99.9% Muslim country. And it's like, it's just over everyone's head. And we're both like, wow, this is really interesting. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was, I, I really loved our Christian American, I guess, holidays because it was like the missionary community or the Christian community. It was really tight. And yeah. moving here is when I started realizing just how commercialized and like cultural those were because there it's like, you're not going to celebrate Easter unless you're like in, yeah. like you're here with us and it's important. Right. And like with Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving was never a huge deal with my family, but there were some like major huge Thanksgiving people that were like, we're finding a Turkey, we're going to find it. And they would spend weeks trying to like locate a place to get a Turkey and then all of That's... the like missionary families would get together. Everyone's making their favorite meals and you're hanging out with people from every yeah. area of America, you know? And like, yeah, I yeah. didn't, I would give like Thanksgiving cards to like my British friends. And then my parents are like, yeah, well, it's like, they're, it's not their holiday. Like we were celebrating leaving them, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so there's just a lot of, and there were some Turkish holidays that we celebrated. Not all of them were like Muslim holidays. Um, okay. There was like Shaker um, Day, which is just called Sugar Day. And then there's like Children's Day. And that was the best day. It's like Mother's Day, but for kids. And you just get candy. It's Halloween, but you don't have to dress up. And people oh, hand you money. Like I got like a hundred lira from like some random like grandpa on my street. Like it was awesome. What? Okay. What was the origin of that? Like how did that start? I have no idea. That was something I didn't care about <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> I know I'd have to research that. But like, yeah, it was awesome. And we, I think my parents were also like, they talk a lot. So my parents are sort of like pre-missions counselors and consultants. Um, yeah. And they talk a lot about like the balance between maintaining your home culture um, mm -hmm. and not losing that and like not trying to like rec recognizing that you're different and then also respect and like appreciation and learning the culture. Yeah. And that was always the balance between my friends was like some people were naming their kids Turkish names and yeah. going all in and totally local and then there was like the other ones that weren't assimilating very well wouldn't even put out a turkish flag on turkish holidays and so i think my okay. parents were always in the middle trying to toe the line yeah. of like we're putting out like we are patriotic to turkey like we're gonna put out our flag yeah. but we're also not going to participate in ramadan because that does look like a cultural holiday but it's a religious holiday and yeah. everything yeah. is merged in turkey like when you were born on your child like your certificate it, your baby certificate is like a stamp that says muslim so it's like oh completely to be turkish is to be muslim okay yeah. sort of the way that now is it is it as cultural as american christianity is i would say it's a little bit more like a little more seriously taken i guess because i okay. feel like here not as much, but there was a lot of like, especially my generation that was like, you put on your head covering, 
but you're wearing your skinny jeans and you're just doing it because you your grandma was over and yeah i gotcha there's like the stages of um not the stages but like the pillars of faith that they have and so like mm-hmm. I remember our neighbor one time coming over and being like, can we borrow a knife? Like I'm supposed to bring the knife to the like sacrifice. My uncle told me to bring the knife, but like, I don't have one that's sharp enough. And my mom's like, this is a dilemma. (laughs) But, and and it was just for them. It was like, I got to go to uncle Joe's house. He needs me to bring the knife to the family sacrifice. So there was that. And there was like some really serious people, um, obviously like very strong practicing Muslims. Got it. Okay. One memory that you had shared with us previously that I thought was one of the most interesting, funniest stories I've ever heard was um, your story of not knowing why everybody had goats on their balconies. Yes. So yeah, during- and Micah, Micah's here to be able to hear the story too. Yeah. So how did Emily Hi, Micah. I've got her um, so she won't hear the trauma of the story. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> I was probably around her age, so, um, gosh, maybe a little older, probably her age though. Um, so during Ramadan sacrifice, um, it's like the old Testament where you sacrifice a sheep or a bull or something like that and pass on your sins to it. And then you sacrifice it. And that's as a family unit, right? Um, yeah. So you can do it individually, family unit, or even like some villages in like Eastern Turkey would all pitch in and get a bull. You know, like it was okay. like whatever financially, you know, that was, okay. a, that was something that was great off topic, but like great because pretty much every Ramadan you put on the news and it's like bull gets loose in village. And it's just like the craziest thing <laughs> of like women screaming, grabbing their kids, men running with like knives and they're like, God, we got to get the bull back. Like, like awesome. Um, and my dad would like always call it people would be visiting and he's like turn on the news there's like a bull loose like i promise you and then we turn it on and it would just be it was awesome um but anyways so everybody gets their own personal sheep i guess for their family on our like all these apartment buildings that came alongside ours everything was pretty close and my mom when we were little was very set on like they will not watch someone actually slit the throat of a sheep like we need to keep them inside so we were not allowed outside like the day before and the day of and i think the day after because that's when you're throwing all of the bodies onto the like you know truck coming by and there's blood and yes micah no Okay, are they throwing those off of balconies? Like throwing sheep carcasses off balconies? So, not in my day, but my parents recite stories of people just like flinging. Like, I think now it's illegal. I think you have to dispose of the like body out of the city. Like, I think they've gotten a lot more strict on the rules, but like you would be driving down the highway in front of the truck and it's like, it fly, like a body flies off and you're just like traumatized, you know? Um, but at the same time, like, you know, they're making it, it's, it's really cool how similar it is to the old Testament because they're eating the meat. And so if they don't eat the meat, then they're going to donate it to someone who didn't like have access or to an orphanage or something. And so they're making the meat from that sacrifice, which is yeah. biblical. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and it, it, like, again, it's like, it's done in a, the most humane way. Like it's done sure, sure. even the way that they do it in the old Testament. So, um, yeah. but anyways, yeah. So wasn't a lot outside, but me and my sister, once you tell us not to do something, my sister's going to like definitely head it as the older sister, but I'm just like following behind. Oh yeah. Um, so we and so you're, you're a little, little. Yeah, I think I'm littler than I think I was. I think I was at the, because I still had like a lisp. So I feel like I was like Micah. I might've been a little bit older, a little more verbal than Micah. But um, yeah, so I followed my little sister out and witnessed the unthinkable as a probably like four-year-old, three-year-old and walked back into the kitchen and my mom's like cooking. And I'm like, mom, they cut the sheepy's head off. And she's like, <laughs> oh <laughs> like, my God. Yeah. And I think after that, I was, I mean, they definitely kept us in, but my mom was like, it's done. She's seen it. Like, 
Oh yeah. my gosh. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit because most people who are here uh, in our community now and just kind of around town know you as a, photo- as a photographer, as an artist. Um, mm-hmm. When did that start? Was that something that you picked up early on? Are either of your parents into any kind of artistic expression or any of that? Yeah. So my dad, I did not know this for a long time, but my dad actually like major dabbled in photography before. Um, so he went to Biola university in California. Um, and there's like all these photos of him with a camera in his hand. And I didn't realize this until like I was in high school and I was like, what? Um, and then I started realizing how he's very artistic and he's very talented. Um, and he has the same, documentative mindset and I didn't realize that I learned that and got that from him like I thought that was the me thing and then slowly I've like been observing him and I'm like oh you think like me um or I think like you so I mean I basically was always drawing as a kid I was always painting doing something with my hands I had my own little like fashion shows with like pictures of girls I was drawing with dresses and um And then my sister started photography classes like through online school because we would do um, like online classes with a bunch of other third culture kids around the world all tuned in to one teacher. Um, And my sister started taking like a photography 101 and I as the, you know, three and a half years younger little sister wants to be my big sister following around with my dad's little tiny like Canon point and shoot copying everything Uh. she does. And, like, yeah. someone the other day, I was explaining this, and they were like, was she annoyed by you? And I was like, probably. But, like, you're always annoying <laughs> your sister, so I don't know. Right, um, right. And then we, I watched her, like, obviously have this awesome camera, and I was like, I want it in. And so I started saving up for a camera, and everything that we bought like that had to be brought by someone from America, because the shipping okay. was really complicated, expensive, or wouldn't go through. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, basically you saved up, you bought it, sent to grandparents, grandparents then are going to come to see us. So in 2010, my grand, we know we're, I think my grandparents knew we were about to move more than maybe I did. (laughs) And they were like, we're going to do one big last like Europe trip because they used to come and take us on these amazing trips. I grew up traveling all over. Um, and a huge part of that was like, my parents moving to Turkey like sparked this love for travel for my grandparents, which was so cool. Um, And so they decided to take us to Italy and my dad is like world traveler. And so he mapped out like a three week road trip to Italy through Italy on a ship back through Greece, drive up back to Turkey. And so my grandparents are bringing our cameras and like, it's like the most annoying epic, like my first experience really in photography was like going to Italy with my new camera, you know, like it's just ridiculous. Like I hate myself a little. Um, right. All right. And I also hate how bad the photos are, you know, I'm like I'm in Italy with a great camera. Like, um, they, how old were so you? They came, um, 12. Okay. Yeah, 11 or 12, major awkward stage. Like, I do not sure. want to be in those photos. <laughs> um, and, which, like, so brave for my parents to take, like, a 12-year-old and probably angsty 15, 16-year-old to Italy. You know, just obnoxious. Like, so my right. parents drove to Italy, and we flew with my grandparents to Italy. And so they drove and met us in Venice. Um, and then we drove all the way down. And so lost my first lens cap. I don't use lens caps, lost it in the Grand Canal of Venice. Never looked back, never really <laughs> paid attention to lens caps. Since I was you also have one at our house. You know that? Probably. I mean, this is what you happens. Do. It's like, you do. <laughs> I was like devastated when I dropped my lens cap because my dad has spent his entire life like trying to get me to put lens caps on cameras and I still have it. <laughs> And so I was probably getting like some dad talk and I'm like, I'm going to ruin the camera. I didn't. So that was like my first exposure because then we came back from that trip and we're, my dad has this like combination of me and my sister's photos and his iPhone photos or whatever. And and we're looking through them and everyone that everyone's like, Oh my gosh, that's so good. They think it's Lizzie 
And then my dad's like, I think Emily took that. And that was a weird, because my sister was the academic and she was the one that was the writer and really good at school. And I was like, I'm getting something, you know? And then it was awesome. And then we moved to the States a year later um, in 2011. And all of a sudden there's this massive thing called senior photos, which was like not a concept to me (laughs) and makes no sense still to me. Um, And (laughs) I mean, I can defend it because it's my job, but I'm not going to tell you it's a need. (laughs) Right. So all I started like doing the cringy photo shoots in the backyard with my new best friends um, and just like sepia tone vignette like all everything terrible from 2013 and then it slowly grew towards people were actually asking me to do photos and then I remember doing like an older sister senior photos of one of my friends and they handed me like a $50 bill and I was like hold up (laughs) I'm rich Yes, I was like, oh, we're in, like, this is in the bag. And so I had not realized that you could actually do that as a job. Again, no exposure. My uncle is a videographer, photographer, but like big, like works for huge companies. So that was like so out of sight, out of mind. And I never met like a full-time photographer until I met Emily Holmes, which I think you know, Emily Glenn Holmes, Ellen's sister. Um, she visited my family to photograph a different family's wedding. And it was the first time I met someone who didn't go to college and was a photographer. And I think it was one of my like exposures to like, this is a possibility because I was so bad at school and my parents were not a pressuring family of like, you have to go to school. Obviously my mom was a learning disabilities therapist. Like she knew at that point that if I went to college, I could, but it would be hard. So it needed to be my decision. And my dad started kind of like planting the seeds of like, you know, you can do this. Like this could be an option for you to actually pursue this as a job. Um, So awesome. And I was like 14. So that's sort of the beginning of the transition into like actually making money. Um, Started working at a camp when I was 15 out in Cordova and Mm -hmm. then coupled that with like, booking weddings in Nike shorts, a tropical smoothie on lunch breaks. Like I cringe, (laughs) Um, but I was so bold. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so how are you learning and developing your, like, are you only like learning through experience at this point? Are you, do you have somebody else who's kind of mentoring you in this during this time or how, how are you developing and getting better? So again, I'm a very like hands on learner books do not do very much good like if I'm gonna learn something from the internet it's gonna be a YouTube video um because then I can visualize it and so Emily Holmes ended up well she was Emily Glantz at the time but she moved to Memphis from Indiana to work for SOS and now I found out that my parents put in like a mentor her call I thought it was like purely me and her and like no family setup I was like my see something in me yeah uh-huh uh, and so we were meeting at like 5 a.m at city and state like right when it started opening and it, they were doing like crazy hours and yeah. I mean to this day she still is like you were so committed because I've never known you to wake up at 5 a.m like this was rough for me waking up for 9 a.m because I'm spoiled <laughs> and I work for myself so right she started mentoring me and it was And I started second shooting for her. And so that was like my entrance into weddings because again, I'd only been to two American weddings by the time that I started photographing them. And so I second shot with her, like literally fell into shooting another one and somehow it just snowballed. And I was like, Oh, bridesmaids are a thing. Okay. You need wedding party photos. And like started learning the entire culture around wedding photography and I did take one, I took a photography 101 class and it was so boring. Um, I was taking photos of like an apple from different lighting like around it. And I was like, I'm getting paid in the afternoon to like photograph people like, yeah. and which, yeah. And then I took a, this is like so great. I, the only class I ever failed in my entire education was entrepreneurship. 
<laughs> it was like an extra and I never turned in my like business plan because I was running a business because I was 17. Yeah. At that point, I was like, yeah. I'm not going to go yeah. to college. I'm doing these. And like literally through the summer, my like online teachers, like you need to turn in. And I was like, I you know, like cruised out. <laughs> yeah. And my mom just, this is total homeschool mom. She just like didn't report that I took the class. So. <laughs> That is so awesome. This has right. been since we knew you, but at some point you, you jump on a road trip to go up the coast of California shooting stuff yeah. for a series that was happening. So wait, how, how did you start getting connected to that or getting your name out for stuff that was not weddings that you were shooting? Right. I stayed in weddings for like probably three years, like full-time wedding photographer. I don't know if I fully lost sight I, of like, like what I wanted to eventually, but it was really hard in Memphis specifically because the wedding industry is bigger than the international ministry industry. Like the nonprofit yeah. is huge here, but it isn't yeah. international. Right. Um, and right. so I got contacted in 2017 by an intern at world relief. And it was a voicemail. It was like the best voicemail of my life. It was like, Hey, uh, my name is Steven from world relief. Like I am looking for a photographer your dad mentioned you because at that time my dad was like heavily partnering with world relief yeah and he was like we're looking for a photographer to document like i'm you know doing writing and stories and we need pictures for stories of refugees and i was like he's like i don't know if you want to do it pro bono and i was like i don't care i need this like outlet. i'll pay you so, yeah exactly i was like take it yes and so I spent that whole summer with that intern, sort of like in houses, oh, awesome. learning people's stories, totally hooked. And then that fall is when World Relief asked me to do an exhibit with them, which I had never done. And I was so excited. It was kind of like the launch of my humanitarian career. Um, yeah. And that was when I got that word because I had a photographer named Esther Havens and she, um, was called a humanitarian photographer okay. and through 2017 to like up to 2019 was me dabbling in this but also in my head thinking I can only call myself a humanitarian photographer if I'm international like have, have I actually been overseas am I working in a refugee camp am I working in like crisis zones and war zones like how can I call yeah. myself this and then huge breakthrough reading an article by a humanitarian photographer and she was like if you can't take photos and tell stories in your own backyard of your best friend's mom what makes you ever think you can do it in like you know night like 102 degrees heat cross a translator yeah. and you have like yeah. bolly belly and it's like an intense story about abuse like yeah. if you can't yeah do that here then like whatever makes you think you're going to be able to do it there and that was exact like, same idea as those who feel called the mission and have never shared the gospel with their neighbor yes or like yeah. don't even expose themselves to like maybe the country's nationals that are here yeah um and yeah. so that was like a huge breakthrough for me and it was very freeing because all of a sudden i was realizing the world is to us, you know, the 1040 window doesn't exist anymore, barely. And the refugee crisis, this was obviously before um, our current administration started putting a lot of bans on it. And so refugees were really flooding in and it was so yeah. much fun and so exciting. Um, and then I got connected actually to that organization that you were referring to in the West Coast because I did their wedding, which I had been told... Uh whole time by my parents and other people they were like you don't know the connections that are going to come from weddings and I as my like dramatic martyr is like I, you must get me out of weddings like you don't know what you're talking about all these things and then like right. one of my favorite stranger couples that found me I went to their wedding in 2017 to photograph in Arizona and then like one year later they're hiring me to come to and like document like do a documentary with a team of nine people up the west coast five different major cities interview on the street like literally like bread and butter i was like are you kidding me you know like i remember the facetime call and then being like are you like willing and i was like <laughs> um and so 
that was really when I started like getting the confidence to call myself a humanitarian photographer because mm -hmm. that was when I was like, no, I'm doing this and I want to be good at this. Yeah. And you kind of have to speak things into existence for people to know that. Cause I was so tired of being known as she's a wedding photographer and she also does this. And then all of a right. sudden when I changed, even though it's so cringy, it's like I changed my Instagram to like humanitarian photographer yeah. and that changed the game. Like as soon as I started wow. focusing my content on stories that were really important to me, um, not just like faces of people that were refugees or immigrants or people in lower income, like the classic nonprofit stuff. When I started telling stories right. to my best friends and all these things, now people introduce me as like, she's an awesome photographer or she's a humanitarian photographer. And yeah. that like, yeah completely boosted the confidence you know oh, that's awesome first of all tell us about the road trip specifically and what was the content what were you guys shooting on that on that trip mm -hmm. um so basically we started in phoenix and the goal they're a organization based in phoenix called voices for the voiceless and so their basically tagline mission statement is that no one will walk through unplanned pregnancy alone um, okay. and so they get a lot of flack for being soft because their approach is very much more of a conversationalist and changing a culture and a society that will welcome unplanned pregnancies. Um, and so what they wanted to do was go up the West coast into some of the most liberal cities and have conversations, not politicized stories of just people's experiences of uh, maybe surprise pregnancies, abortions, um, their kids, and every angle. So, like, we wanted to talk to the mom. We wanted to talk to, you know, the teenager's mom. We wanted to talk to the boyfriend. We wanted to talk to the dad, the friend, you know, every person's angle yeah. because we wanted basically to start a healthy conversation and provide stories that people maybe don't have access to to recognize yeah just how much of a humanitarian like issue and, and a human experience this is that we started in Phoenix in like 101 degrees and you know everyone's like dry heat well that was the day that everyone was like man this is the most humid it has been all summer and I was like <laughs> like I just left Memphis like whatever so then um from Phoenix, we interviewed all day. Um, and then that night went to sleep in all of our different places. All of the, the team was like three videographers, three photographers and three journalists, writers, um, yeah. and then two vans. And I think only one place did we like pay to stay somewhere. <laughs> so it was, wow. we were definitely, we had one night where it was like sleeping in the basement of a church and I was like, really thought I was fast these days, but okay. <laughs> um, and we went from Phoenix the next day, we're hitting the road all the way to, um, LA. And then we did LA all day, separated all the teams. So each one was writer, videographer, photographer. And so the sort of the method was like, I worked with two white guys that were over six foot. So it was my role basically to walk up to people. I didn't know that signing up. So I was like the most approachable, if you will. <laughs> Of like, hey, do you want to be in our documentary? And yeah, we're talking about unplanned pregnancy. A um, lot of rejection and had to get used to that. And it was brutal. Um, yeah. Like, I hated being me. Like, I was like, I hate me in this moment. I don't like to be approached. <laughs> right. And I don't want to be right. Like, people would just be like, no. Before they even heard me talk. And I was like, oh, like I'm sorry. Um, and I'm like, I'm not selling you anything, but okay. And so then LA, we did all day. And then the next, we went to San Francisco, which was incredible. I love San Francisco so much. It was like yeah. the closest weather to Izmir, where I grew up. Uh, um, okay. Just like by the water, breeze wafting through busy city. Yeah. It's very nostalgic. Yeah. Um, and then from San Francisco, we went to Portland and then we ended in Seattle. Um, and then we flew out from Seattle all to our places. Okay. Man, yeah. that is incredible. And is that, did that, is there a place people can go and watch that if they want to? The documentary? Yes. Yeah. There is a YouTube account and it is like a mini docu series. So they release okay. episodes at a time on like 
same sort of like storylines. Okay, we'll link it in the description uh, yeah. of the video whenever we post. I want to talk more about the Crosstown showcase that you did for yeah. Relief. So when you did that, I, and a lot of people probably went and saw that, um, which that was, I think that was early on into us knowing you. And I remember we were walking out from eating at Farmburger and we're like, oh, this is, this is Emily's like exhibit. This is incredible. And so, okay, one, <clears throat> one more question before we go. So as you are, as you are now like firmly squarely in this photography world professionally, it is your career. Um, what, what do you want the rest of the world to know about photography? What do you want them to know about, um, uh, for example, like everyone has an iPhone now. And so everyone is now a pseudo photographer. Um, what is it that we should know uh, when we're, you know, thinking about this world of taking pictures? Something that's really important is ethical photography and ethical storytelling. And with, like you said, everyone having an iPhone, the access to photograph is so much higher and the in people aren't in classes learning about the ethics of photography. Um, yeah. They have their iPhone at like 12, 12 years old. Um, yeah. And so I think one of the things that's, just really important is that photography lends itself to exploitation. It doesn't lend it lend itself to dignifying because wow. it's very, it's a very vulnerable thing. It's very exposing. Um, I mean, you experienced it, you were in front of my camera and like, I have, you know, like a hundred photos of y'all half blinking and probably not looking your best. And it's like, <laughs> that's exposing to put yourself in front of a camera. And yeah. Yeah. You know, like we live in this day and age where it's like, oh my gosh, look, this person is beating this person up. Or like, oh my gosh, look at this. And it's like, yeah. some of the yeah. most famous images in the world are some of the most exploitive, undignified yeah. images of people. Yeah. And like Pulitzer Prize images. I went through the Pulitzer Prize gallery while I was in DC a couple years ago. And like, it was disturbing. And to me, it was pretty horrific that these images that like are marked down in history is the most famous best taken photos are photos that no no one wants to see themselves in those photos no one yeah. wants to, no one is proud of that and no one um right. and i think also like with ngo specifically um the goal is to get you to give or volunteer so they need to tell a narrative of the neediest people and so yeah out of desperation they're going to use maybe the most exploitive image of someone. So like a little child around the corner yeah. looking up into looking up into the eyes of someone, you know, flies flying around and then like the caption, you know, is like, help me. Like literally yeah. I've seen that with like organizations. Yeah. Right. And right. I'm like, whose mom is that? Like, like whose kid, who, like, is their mom, did their mom know you were taking that photo? Mm -hmm. Did your mom know that that was what was going to be put on it and how undignifying and like embarrassing and shameful to yeah. like put that on a family of like, you can't provide for your kids. And it's like, no, I'm a refugee. I was providing for my kids. And because of choices that I didn't make, I had to flee here. But like, wow. this isn't on me. And I think that's like, what's so hard with photography is like, even with things like TikTok, it's like, we're all, I've had to learn this with my parents is like, I can't just video them when I'm not telling them. I can't just record audio and take photos of them, but we do yeah. it all the time, but it's like non-consensual, like it is. And one of the, it's really interesting because like I, the more I get into it, the deeper the spiral goes of like, so what even is ethical? And I think that's like the dilemma and for me, the answer is like, if you are doubting it for a second, or if you would feel uncomfortable someone calling you out taking this photo, then don't take it or don't post it. And yeah. so when you're going on a, when you're going on a mission trip, when you're traveling, um, volunteering I mean, in the city, volunteering in the city. Yeah. Even if someone signed something, um, you're holding the upper hand. And so like, this is something that I think is, especially like working with world relief. I learned this of like you, world relief has offered life changing services to this individual. Yeah. Are they really going to deny you to take their photo? Do they mm -hmm. think that they're still going like do, so we need to make sure that we tell them 
this is retractable. This is not going to stop us providing services to you. And that is yeah. communicated yeah. very well, especially in spaces like urban ministries. It's like, this is really important because um, it's really easy to tokenize. It's really easy to just think these kids are cute or these individuals are like yeah. amazing stories. And the reality is, is like, a part of the reason maybe you're allowed to take their photo is because they're scared that if you, if they say no, then they're not going to get the services that they need. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, I don't know. I Man, mean, I feel like that, it's like such a huge, yeah. No, it is. But that, I think that's super helpful for all of us because um, in essence, when the iPhone added a camera feature and then apps were personalized to be able to allow you to upload photos at will, we all became photojournalists. Yes. And, and it, without and all story, of the courses instructing yes. us what on how are you to telling? Yeah. Are you telling the truth? Because you can also catch someone Man. in a moment and it's like, that's not the full story. Cause I know totally. like an example that I always use is like when my mom is cooking in the kitchen, when I was little, like literally for like two, you know, two hours straight cooking, meal prepping or whatever. And I'm running in and it's super hot. It's 101 degrees in Turkey or whatever. She doesn't look happy. Is she happy to right. be providing for her family? Yes. Totally. Now, go into the context of, you know, Sierra Leone, go into the context of Liberia. A mom is cooking for two hours outside in 100 degree heat for her family. She's not going to look happy. But if you right. take that image and try to market it as that to get help and, and services, you're yeah. not telling the full truth. Right. Um, right. And that's, just, yeah, it's just important to recognize like a story, a photo tells a thousand words and a part of your responsibility as having a camera is knowing that those a thousand words are the right a thousand words and the truth. Man, that is so good. That is so good. Um, thank, thank you so much for coming on today and just for sharing all this. Um, we'll probably need to do a part two because I feel like there's a bunch of stuff we didn't even get to that we need to talk about um, at some yeah. point. But tell us where people can find your photography, where they can find your work, and, and find all your online. Yeah, so Instagram handles Emily J. Frazier, spelled with a Z. And if you're interested in my weddings, it's Emily Frazier Weddings. And then, um, I mean, my website is emily-fraser.com. So, yeah. Okay. Thanks for having me. This is super those. fun. Yeah. No, I'm Absolutely. like, I'm so easy. Once I get on a soapbox, it's like, I can talk. I can tell stories. <laughs> well, same. So, it's a fit. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Emily Frazier, and we will talk to you soon. See you later. God bless the dad that provided us all the